temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you on this first Sunday of 2021. Happy New Year. We are pleased to be joined by incoming State House Speaker Matthew Ritter. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Well, a lot of things are going to be different this session, which begins on Wednesday, at least at the start of it, including opening day itself. I understand you were hoping for a good forecast on Wednesday. Yes. Let's hope the weather cooperates. Uh, if it does, we'll we'll do a very, I think, unique and, and sort of special swearing in of everybody outside, obviously socially distanced with masks on. If the weather does not cooperate, then we'll we'll figure out a, a plan B and do it inside. But obviously, we will not be packing people in the chamber as we have in previous years. How is the legislative process going to work as the pandemic drags on? Yeah, I mean, get used to Zoom like you have in your work life. Uh, that's what we're going to have to do for the public hearing and the committee process. Um, the public will have full access to testify on bills. Again, it will be on a computer, not in person. Uh, we will... Uh, uh, live stream or televise all of our public hearings and committee meetings. So no one will miss anything, but I would be the first to admit it's going to be different. It's not going to be the same as it has been in the past. And then hopefully as we get to April and May or June, um, depending on the, the rate of vaccination here in Connecticut and how many vaccines are ultimately made available by the FDA, you know, it is possible we could open the, the capital back up to, to the public sometime in, in April or May, but that'll be a judgment call based upon CDC and DPH recommendations. Now, for people who want to partake in the legislative process and testify at hearings, it can be arduous and time-consuming going to the legislative office building and getting a number and waiting many hours in many cases. Do you think there are going to be a lot of marathon sessions given that people can wait in the comfort of their home or office? Yeah, you know, Definitely where, although we have, we don't have people testifying in person anymore, I think in many ways we've made it easier, to your point, Aaron, to access the legislative public hearing process because you hit it on the head. Instead of driving up in your car and waiting for, you know, who knows how long, you can do it from the comfort of your couch. Uh, I suspect that it will do two things. One is, yes, you will have some hearings go a lot longer because people find it easier to sort of kind of know when their, their, their turn is up. I also think you'll see fewer bills get raised for a public hearing, right? Because I think the chairs understand that uh, being on a Zoom call for, for 36 hours is not, is not going to be in everybody's best interest. So you'll have more access, but you'll probably have fewer public hearings and fewer bills this year. 
And as speaker, what will some of your legislative priorities be? Yeah, I mean, we, we have to make sure we allow for early voting, uh, continue that process via constitutional amendment. We have to continue to look at no excuse absentee ballot voting. Uh, as we saw last November, Connecticut is so far behind uh, the times uh, when compared to any state in this country, quite frankly, red or blue, and how limited we make voting. You know, it, it's just, it's, it's unconscionable how difficult we've made it. And this pandemic showed that when people are given other options, they take advantage of them. Uh, obviously, balancing the budget is is our number one main priority this session. Uh, our revenue estimates continue to get a lot better. The recent federal stimulus package will continue to help, I think, our revenue uh, picture for fiscal year 21. And then we'll also tackle the biennium budget 21 through 23. But a lot of work will go into that. We won't really have a clear sense of where we are until probably sometime in April. Uh, but that would be our, our biggest priority is getting an adopted budget done on time. As you mentioned, with the issue of early voting, that's a change to the state constitution. That's something that's <laughs> got to eventually go to voters. I know you have also talked about sending the issue of recreational marijuana to voters if lawmakers don't go ahead and approve it. Could they be looking at a lot of things on, on the ballot in 2022? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to send the, the legalization, um, legalization of marijuana to a referendum. I get it to a point now, though, we're going on year seven of this debate. It's being legalized all around us via the referendum route. And at some point, you just say to yourself, maybe it's best left to the voters if we can't decide. Having said that, I am pretty confident we will get, we'll be about as close as we've ever been in terms of the vote count this year. And again, that's not driven by revenue. It's not driven by dreams of, you know, billion dollar surpluses. We understand the revenue just will continue to decrease every year as more states come online and, and offer it. What, what this bill is about is getting rid of criminal records for uh, possession of marijuana that we've since decriminalized, for example, expungement of records. It's about acknowledging that people go to other states and buy it, um, that it has been very success successful in our medicinal marijuana program here in Connecticut. It's about just acknowledging that reality. And I think we'll get close to doing it this year. And if we can't, then yeah, you know, we'll give it to the voters. It would be in 2022 or 2024, depending on how many people vote for the question the first time. But that would at least take it out of the legislature because I think we're all kind of fed up having the same debate year after year. After year. One of the other hot issues this year is expected to be the legalization of sports betting and online gaming in Connecticut. The governor has been in talks with the state's two federally recognized tribes. It seems they are getting closer to a deal. How close is that to becoming a reality in Connecticut? Yeah, I'm optimistic this year. I think the governor has re-engaged in a significant way with his staff. They're, they're certainly going down uh, different ideas. Sports gaming is, is very uncontroversial. I don't suspect you'll get many no's on that. The more controversial thing is, is online gaming. And what does that mean? Well, it means that on your phone, you could play certain games, um, you know, blackjack, for example. Um, and again, there are restrictions in place, but you know, to some people, that's a little different than sports gaming and a little more uh, potentially uh, could be abused or have people with problem gaming, um, you know, utilizing that option more and more. Um, but to me, our phones can do everything now and they're going to continue to be the reality of our world going forward. And I think we should have daily restrictions on it, how much money you can spend in any given day, uh, 
you know, uh, extra, extra, extra steps can be taken to make it safer, to make me comfortable with that. But I think that's the, the unknown is whether that will pass or not. How much more complicated is this in Connecticut than in other states because of the two tribal compacts? The same way our women's basketball team is so much better than everybody else, uh, legalizing uh, sports gaming is much more complicated than every other state. Uh, they both exceed the uh, competition by wide margins. Uh, it's just very complicated. Other states, it was very simple. You want to legalize it, yes or no. If that was the case in Connecticut, it would have happened four years ago. Um, it gets complicated when you think about how the federal government may look at this, both the uh, Department of Interior, then you have federal lawsuits that could be filed around, you know, what are you now offering online, which is different than offering on the actual reservation or, or tribal property. So these are all really difficult questions, which is why it's been thorny for so many years. Did it at least get a little easier with the tribes announcing that they were putting the plans for the satellite casino in East Windsor on the, the back burner? You know, I, I suspect, although I think MGM has, has long ago in the last year or two abandoned any notion of, of, of building another casino here in Connecticut. Um, they, they have certainly not lobbied at the state capitol with the same level of, uh, of um, vigor, if you will. Um, and so, and their casino is struggling in Springfield. So I think that doesn't hurt, but I also am not sure that MGM was really a player anymore in Connecticut. You mentioned the budget earlier. It seems that is going to really factor into all of the other discussions on other legislation at the the state capitol this year. How easy will it be to craft a two-year budget given COVID? The budget is is going to be so difficult this year, yes, because of COVID and the inequities we've seen and the need to invest and um, and people's and all the things that have sort of changed society, right? And healthcare and education. At the same time, I don't think I've ever seen such widely fluctuating revenue estimates out of our nonpartisan staff, which is not their fault. We just, you know, this is uncharted territory. Nobody really has a sense of how quickly revenues will rebound. And so we could see wild swings of literally a billion dollars over a six month period, which is what has happened, right? We had a a deficit we thought back in April of over one and a half billion dollars for this fiscal year. It's down to 600 million and getting lower every day. That's a wild, wild swing. That makes it hard to adopt a budget because your revenue estimates are obviously a major part of it. I mean, imagine you're a municipality and you didn't know if your tax collection rate was going to be 75% or 95%. That's a very big difference in, in how much you can spend. Um, so what I'm counseling everybody is to be patient, see how the, the vaccination rollout goes, see what President-elect Biden does uh, in terms of his ideas for stimulating the economy, and we'll see where we are in April or May. I know that's frustrating. People like answers immediately, but in this case, we're just not going to have them for a while. Do you think tax increases will have to be part of the, the discussions? They may be, absolutely. Um, at the end of the day, if we're staring down the, a barrel of a couple billion dollar deficit, uh, you have to have a conversation. And to me, it starts with the ability to pay. Um, I think that the the argument a lot have made that there are people who have, uh, especially with soft income on something like capital gains, um, you know, that would be for me something I want to have a conversation about. But I also don't lead with this notion that we have to do anything. It will all have to be dependent upon what our revenue estimates are, what the federal government does, and what we think are priorities for spending um, for the folks and the residents of the state of Connecticut. But yeah, if we have to, 
we'll have that conversation with, in my opinion, we'll have a sort of a, pro- a progressivity bent to it. Um, and, you know, Rhode Island's looking at something similar. Uh, it would be a one or two year surcharge on something. We wouldn't make it permanent. Um, but if we need that to fund our public schools and pay for our fire and police and all those good things and uh, then I would have that conversation, yeah. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to incoming State House Speaker Matthew Ritter. The 2021 legislative session begins this coming Wednesday. Now, embedded within the deliberations on the broader state budget is the issue of transportation funding in particular. The state's special transportation fund is running on empty. What are the plans to help shore that up? Yeah, I, I remind people this was a, a big debate uh, <clears throat> last year and two years ago. Look, at the end of the day, it's probably going to be a combination of transferring some revenues to the uh, from the general fund to the um, the transportation fund, and probably an increase in borrowing. Um, you know, that was an idea pitched by the Republicans. I I think I didn't want to borrow the amount they wanted to borrow, but interest rates are very low right now. Um, frankly, artificially low. Uh, it's not a bad time to increase your borrowing to pay for transportation costs. That's not going to solve it for the next 30 years, but a combination of those two things probably buys you another 10 years. And then we also have to just wait and see again how how modernization comes. I, I will go back to tolling, for example. I was a big proponent of, of tolls. I still support it. I think it makes sense. You would charge out-of-state drivers to pay for our upgrades the same way we do when we go to Massachusetts or New York. But I will also admit to you that I think the world has forever changed in how people work. And the idea that everyone's going to get in their car and drive uh, to work five days a week post-COVID, I just don't think that's accurate. I think thousands of cars will leave the highways every day as people work one, two, three days from home a week uh, or change even their hours of work. So, you know, we need to be solvent for, for, for 10 years, I think, to feel safe. But we also shouldn't assume we know what the world's going to look like in 10 years, as we've already seen this year. Before Christmas, we heard from the Lamont administration signing on to an accord with Massachusetts, Rhode Island and Washington, D.C. to make a commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions related to transportation. How does that factor into deliberations on transportation funding? The critics are saying, ah, this is going to result in a a gasoline tax increase. Is that part of the the talk? Um, Well, yeah, the same critics, the Yankee Institute, who, by the way, a year ago was telling uh, me in a meeting that we should take, or or others in a meeting, rather, that we should take $1.5 billion out of our rainy day fund uh, and use that cash to subsidize transportation projects by dumping it in our pension fund. If we had done that prior to the global pandemic, Lord knows where our state would be. So the same people who criticize also had terrible ideas that have been disproven very quickly. Um, on the on the climate change pact the governor announced prior to the new year, I need to learn more about it. I'll tell you my concern. It's it's not that we're entering a regional um, cooperation with states. I think that makes a lot of sense. My concern is, at the end of the day, is making sure that we don't lose the ability to govern our own affairs in the state of Connecticut to respond to events. So my staff's going through that a little bit. I want to make sure that we maintain our flexibility and quite frankly, our sovereignty to make our own decisions. If it's a compact that's going to force us to do things year over year, I might be uncomfortable with that. Last year, I recall a press conference in which you participated regarding desegregate CT, which is an effort to change zoning laws in certain communities around the state to make things more inclusive and in in many cases 
allow multi-unit housing on tracts of land that are only zoned for single-unit housing currently. Do you see that coming back this year? I do. I, I think it is true that we have a system here in Connecticut where we have some towns that are uh, are willing and have time and time again stepped up to build housing that represents the general public, right? People with great means and and affordable housing units mixed together and and you know and in the same neighborhood. And then we have places where the rules are so restrictive that you, know, you have to make an inordinate amount of money to live there. Um, so it will come back. I will say too, though, as an urban legislator, the thing that is and talking to a lot of my colleagues who represent Hartford and Bridgeport and New Haven. The the sort of frustrating part about this movement though, is that it needs to be coupled with investments in our cities, right? The idea that we should just go build housing in all the suburban towns so everybody can leave Hartford, um, that's not appealing to everybody. It appeals to some, but there are a lot of people who who also like where they live, like where they grew up and are saying, you know, we should also invest in new housing in the cities and in these neighborhoods. we have to couple those two arguments, and I'm not sure we've done that in a coherent way yet. And that's you know part of my job is to figure that all out. In fact, you told a pretty compelling story at that press conference about Bloomfield, which is quite desegregated now. And when when your family was there decades ago, it, it wasn't so much. Yeah, my my grandparents, uh, George and Patricia Ritter, my my father's parents. Um, to your point, uh, and if you can imagine this in the 1950s and 60s, uh, you know, the neighborhood and there were neighborhoods in Bloomfield that were all white and a lot of, they would not sell to African-American families. And so they, uh, through some wealthy uh, uh, friends, created a fund uh, and went and my grandmother would buy homes. Uh, she would pretend to be the buyer. And the minute she closed on the house, she would turn the deed over to African-American families. In this case, it was the Myers family on Applewood Road in Bloomfield, right off of the, the town, you know, sort of the main town square there by town hall. And uh, that's how the Myers family lived there. And they lived there uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, and I got to spend time with them at the end of, um, you know, uh, Mr. Myers's life and heard some of the stories and it's pretty compelling. But you think about that, that was the 1950s and 60s and there's still some communities that remain the same today. Will payment in lieu of taxes reform be on the agenda for this session? And let's explain that for the listeners. For for cities and towns that have a lot of government-owned land within them, they get a payment from the state, which should make up for the property taxes they would otherwise collect on that land, but it's been short-funded since really anyone can remember. Yeah, absolutely. And And look, at the end of the day, Harford is is proud to host a lot of facilities that are tax exempt. Like we have two great hospital systems, right? That doesn't hurt our city, but it does take away a lot of land that could otherwise generate tax revenue. Um, we will have to look at pilot. Um, I know Senator Looney representing New Haven. It's a big deal with Yale owning so much property down there. So the answer is yes, we, we will, because at the end of the day, you have four or five cities that have such high mill rates that it makes it very hard for them to be competitive. And my thought is that if you could increase pilot, you could drive those mill rates to a different level, which would hopefully make them more competitive, uh, more sustainable. Um, you might even be able to reduce state aid at some point down the road if you were able to accomplish that. So a lot of it ties together, but I know for us inner city legislators, it's an important conversation. Now, I know a lot of state and local leaders on really both sides of the aisle around the country were hoping that more assistance for local governments was included in the recent stimulus package passed by Congress. 
Are you hopeful that there might be more under a, a President Biden? I am hopeful because I think at the end of the day, uh, the need is not going to go away for red states or blue states. It's there. And, I, and I've read articles about how it's going to go to shore up pension funds in Illinois and then make restrictions. You know, I, I want to go meet with some of these people in Congress and go, you write the law, put restrictions on what the money can be used for. Say you can't deposit it into a pension fund. Um, say it can only go for certain things. We're fine with that. But Connecticut is no different than Florida. Everybody has seen a decline in revenue because of things that have been banned, uh, things that have been restricted. And the federal government has to respond for national emergencies. It's not a state emergency. It's not a state created problem. It has affected the entire globe and has certainly affected our country. And Connecticut's not asking for some exorbitant amount of money to forever uh, pad our coffers. Um, the amount that was talked about was $2 billion uh, in the last package that Connecticut would have received, 1.5 to 2 billion. To put that in perspective, that would help us balance our budget for the next two years. That's it, that's all it would do. It would help us make sure we honor our commitment to schools, um, to you know, our, our employees who work for, you know, in different departments of the state of Connecticut. Uh, it makes sure we fund public health, make sure we fund higher education, all things that nobody really disagrees with. So if we were asking for $100 billion, I would agree with the rhetoric. No state, to my knowledge, is asking for that. They're looking for COVID-related expenses. That's why we have a federal government. The governor's executive powers related to the pandemic became somewhat of a political football last fall. Those powers expire in February. Do you see that being an issue this session? Yeah, we, we have to rethink it a little bit. And he, here's why, okay? The extension that we gave to the governor in the fall was for six months, right? And that's what expires on February 9th. And I will be the first to admit that August 9th, which is six months from February 9th, will look a lot different uh, than February 9th looks. So the idea of putting all that power in the executive branch for the summer months, when we expect to have vaccines widely available, uh, again, warmer weather, which is a better environment for COVID, or re reduces transmission, obviously, uh, as people are outside more. You know, I would agree with, with anybody who says that that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think what we'll work with in the governor's office is maybe a month-to-month -month situation. But here's what I would say. Mask mandates are not going away, you know, in May. They're going to be there with us probably throughout the summer. When you go to the grocery store, you should wear a mask. The governor is best left to do some of those things in the legislature, particularly when we're not in session. And so we just have to find that right balance. Um, but there are going to be some things that I think the legislature is going to want back in terms of power and some things we realize we have to be quick, allow the governor to pivot on a week to week basis to, to deal with hot spots and trouble issues. So we'll have to probably negotiate a compromise on that. Now, I'm curious, in our final minutes, have you been doing any reflecting as you prepare to take the speaker's gavel, considering your father held the post? Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not a very sentimental person. Um, so maybe maybe reflection is the wrong word, or maybe that's not even what you meant. But it is certainly unique, and um, it's going to be an incredible moment. My father is going to swear me in in a couple of days. Um, he's going to administer the oath to me. Uh, outside or inside, we'll see. But I, I will tell you that what, what is probably I reflect on the most is it's been a long run in politics for me. Uh, you know, I started 13 years ago on the Hartford City Council. 
I was so young when I first ran for office, I had to ask my parents for permission. Um, I entered the legislature 10 years ago, um, never with designs to be Speaker of the House. I, I simply wanted to enjoy every session every two years and work my way up. I never thought I would be Speaker at, at 38 after five terms in the legislature. So I'm going to enjoy it, right? I'm going to reflect on it, but I'm really going to enjoy it. I'm not going to let the, the pressure of the job get to me. Um, I'm going to remain accessible. I'm going to love my city and love the state that I live in. Uh, work with colleagues, Republicans and Democrats to try to solve our state's problems. But yeah, is it is it unique to, to have a dad who had the same job? Of course. And having grown up uh, around the Capitol with legislators, I spent a lot of time at the Capitol during, you know, when I had winter vacations, my dad would drag me up there and I'd hang out in his office. Um, you know, it's, it's great, warm memories. But, you know, you also have a job to do. And I'd rather be more sentimental, you know, when I'm done with politics and right now, probably. He is incoming State House Speaker Matthew Ritter. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, and Happy New Year. Thanks, Aaron. Happy New Year to you, too. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.